0: The scripture reading this morning is from Galatians 5 verses 16 through 25. The reading is from the Common English Bible. I say be guided by the Spirit and you won't carry out your selfish desires. A person's selfish desires are set against the Spirit and the Spirit is set against one's selfish desires. They are opposed to each other. So you shouldn't do whatever you want to do. But if you are being led by the spirit, you aren't under the law. The actions that are produced by selfish motives are obvious. They include sexual immorality, moral corruption, doing whatever feels good, idolatry, drug use, and casting spells, hate, fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition, conflict, selfishness, group rivalry, jealousy, drunkenness, partying, and other things like that. I warn you, As I have already warned you, that those who do these kinds of things won't inherit God's kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Arlene. That's quite a list, isn't it? Aside from the casting of spells, I think I've seen, which I haven't seen in a long time, I think, I think I've seen every one of those things on that list happen in the last week. Uh, unfortunately, I've seen far too many of them happen uh, in my own life, and I suspect that many of us in the room can relate to that as well. Thanks be to God for the gifts of the Spirit, however, which we pray we will see in more abundance. Please pray with me. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but you are mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Amen. Today we begin our sermon series for Lent, Virtues and Vices. You'll see the graphic for that on the front cover of your bulletin. You don't have the benefit of seeing the bumper video that we use at the 930 worship service, but you get the gist. Lent is a time for self-examination and renewal. many people give up something for Lent, usually something that is in some way bad for us, that classics like chocolate or alcohol or modern temptations like social media. Maybe we should all give up social media for the season of Lent. By the way, just how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you give up something for Lent? How many of you have given something up this year? That's an interesting practice. I I also gave up some things for Lent myself. In, In many ways, virtues and vices, though, are remnants of a bygone era. We're going to be studying them over the next several weeks, it makes sense. There are, it's a time for thinking about our own sin uh, and, and reflection. There, and there are seven deadly sins. There are roughly seven weeks in Lent, so it's, it's kind of a good fit. But these, these ideas are, are sort of lost to us in modernity. Their meanings have strayed from their original meaning. If we use the word virtue at all, it's typically within the realm of ethical or philosophical study. In everyday parlance, We use the term virtue to mean something that is just sort of generally good, like uh, patience is a virtue. But the concept of virtue traces its roots to Aristotle, who thought of virtue very differently than the way we speak of it today. The word Aristotle used was arete, which is perhaps more accurately understood to mean excellence. And excellence was something that made something useful for whatever it was. Take, for instance, an object like an axe. An axe was useful. It had an excellence if it was strong and sharp and it would allow it to cut wood. That was an excellence. Um, in, in humans, Aristotle stu- understood that to mean things, excellences were things that made us good citizens or part of a community together. An Aristotelian thought the ideal target was somewhere between having none of that quality at all and having it to excess. The golden mean was appropriate, was important for Aristotle. A virtuous person had a balanced measure of excellence of any number of excellences. Virtue was lofty then, but not unattainable. Well, likewise, the meaning of vice in our society has been altered. We use it today to refer to practices that are generally unhealthy for us, like smoking or drinking. Many police departments in municipal areas have a vice squad to deal with things like prostitution, gambling, and drug trafficking. But the the vices identified by early Christian thinkers weren't generically synonymous with sin, nor were they the sort of obvious infractions we identify today. In fact, of the seven deadly sins, none of them would be things we would name among the most serious. We would likely populate a list with things like murder, rape, lying, stealing, adultery, violence, and abuse. Compared to that list, the seven deadly sins seem, seven deadly sins seem rather pedestrian, ordinary, almost harmless. But to the ancients, they were deadly serious. The things we name might kill the body but they are outward manifestations of something that is happening inside the heart. Inner spiritual vices which left unchecked can be deadly to both the body and the soul. We have the Desert Fathers to thank for our list of the seven deadly sins. A list recorded and codified by Gregory the Great, that's not the other pastor who serves alongside us here at Church of the Savior, Gregory the Great. This is the 7th century version, Gregory the Great. He had a little clarification from Thomas Aquinas about 600 years later. It's still that same list, by the way, that we use today. Those seven vices or deadly sins are gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, envy, pride, and wrath. Now we'll cover six of the seven over the course of Lent. We're skipping over lust because I just preached on it in the last sermon series. Despite our society's obsession with sex, I don't feel a particular need to talk about it again that soon. Is that okay with everybody? Can we skip over sex for a while? If you missed it and you want to go back, it's, it was the sermon from January 19th. You can find it um, archived on our website. You've got the sermon manuscript and the podcast. I know you'll look forward to that one. both Gregory and Aquinas and those who went before them recognized that sin is part of human nature. Our vices are never far from us, a constant temptation, no matter who we are. But rather than ignoring them or just trying to repress those things, they believed that the best antidote was the development of virtue. Now I have a confession to make, this being Lent, I feel like it's appropriate for me to confess. I am obsessively fussy about my lawn. Anybody else with me on that one? I I want the grass to be green and lush and well manicured. Few things irritate me. My wife is here, you can ask her about this. Few things irritate me more than weeds in the lawn. Uh, If I see those unwelcome disruptors of backyard nirvana, whether they're dandelions, clover, crabgrass, or chickweed, I go running for a spade or or perhaps reaching for the weed and feed. Um, Let me not uh, encourage us to use more chemical additives to our lawn, however. I've learned from lawn care professionals that the best way to eliminate weeds is to grow more grass. You see, if the grass is thicker and the root system is healthy, there simply isn't space for weeds to germinate. The same logic applies to virtues and vices the best way to keep those vices from taking root in our lives is to cultivate virtue now some of you know that the tiles on the floor up here include the four cardinal virtues prudence temperance fortitude and justice and the three theological virtues faith hope and charity or love if you prefer now, they're in Latin because, after all, this is Church of the Savior, and why do something simply? But you can come up after worship and, and see those tiles on the floor, and you can pick out all seven of those, of those virtues. The seven we're studying throughout the course of Lent are a little bit different. We'll cover the virtues that correspond to the vices or the seven deadly sins. Today, we begin with gluttony and one virtue that makes both lists, temperance. So let's linger on gluttony for a few minutes, shall we? Is gluttony so bad? I mean, we all overeat on occasion. I think I did last night. It might cause a little lethargy and perhaps indigestion. But a deadly sin? Really? Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard by his opponents. That's Jesus, that's not the other cats that ran around with him, that was Jesus. He called him a glutton and a drunkard. And how did Jesus respond? By telling a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven where he likened it to a banquet or a feast. That's interesting. Of course, there are some consequences to gluttony, at least of sustained overindulgence at the dinner table. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 71% of adults age 20 and over in the United States are overweight or obese. 71%. According to a study just released a few days ago, the obesity rate went up to 42% in this country. That's a 4% increase over the last three years. Americans spend $66 billion, that's billion with a B, 66 billion annually on weight loss. weight loss. To put that in perspective, that's more than the gross national product of Ghana. We clearly have a problem with food and nutrition, made worse by gluttony's cousin, Sloth. There's plenty of reason to consider gluttony as a health concern, but what does it have to do with spiritual matters? To the ascetics who devised the list, gluttony was a gateway to the other vices. Bear in mind, now these were people who lived in monastic communities in the desert where food was scarce and rarely flavorful. Overindulgence by some meant that others went without. In the Middle Ages where Chaucer and Dante and others made those seven deadly sins really come to life, the poor were thin and plumpness was a sign of prosperity and wealth. So gluttony was also related to justice. But today, obesity rates are highest in poverty dense areas. Perhaps due in part to the high cost of healthy eating and the relatively poor nutritional value of more accessible and less expensive options like fast food or frozen dinners. Still, An estimated 37 million Americans struggle with hunger every day. What's going on here? Our relationship with food is complicated, especially in a society with as much opportunity and variety as ours. Food gets intertwined with all sorts of other things, like memory, association with past experiences or people. How many of us have smelled cookies baking and, and thought of our mother's kitchen table. Or, uh, or having a meal, sitting down and eating something and saying, this is so good, it reminds me of the way my grandmother used to make it. Things like emotion. Food is central to our celebration of many occasions. We, I can't think of a time that I, there was a, an occasion to celebrate that didn't include food. So we eat to celebrate, but we also eat when? When we're depressed or in response to stress. Culture also affects us. What we eat and when we eat it has a lot to do with the way in which we were brought up and those who went before us. Gluttony isn't confined to volume either. Conspicuous consumption can take many forms. Pope Gregory named five different types of gluttony. He called them species of gluttony, which included eating too early, too quickly, too much, too sumptuously, and too fussily. Well, I kind of made up that last word. That's not really a word. He said too daintily, which didn't make any sense to me either. But I guess the idea is being too picky about your food. So too early, too quickly, too much, too sumptuously, or too being too picky. In each case, it's that little word too that gets us in trouble. Another confession. I can be a bit of a food snob. Okay, I can be a lot of a food snob. I am particular about my tastes when it comes to coffee, beer, cheese, bread, olive oil, cuts of meat, and a whole variety of other things. I like to say I have a distinguished palate, but, you know, that's just an excuse. Now, that particularity can be a form of gluttony if those preferences become a barrier to graciousness or hospitality or my relationships with others or my relationship with God. Many of us either are or know people who are health nuts, locavores, vegans, vegetarians, organic food nuts, name it. Now, there are dietary restrictions, many of which have legitimate health concerns that are underlying them, and I don't want to make light of any of those. I suspect there are a whole lot more food preferences that make their way. You cannot hold a meal for any group of people without accommodating all sorts of other things now. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those preferences. It's okay to have preferences unless they get in the way of more important matters. Gluttony is not only an issue of volume but of conspicuous consumption in a world where too many have not enough. Our problem isn't supply, it's distribution. Our stomachs can be full and our hearts empty at the same time. Spiritual hunger cannot be satisfied by physical indulgence, no matter how much or how discriminatingly we partake. The virtue, with the power to answer gluttony's attraction, is temperance. Now, I don't mean temperance in terms of the anti-alcohol movement that led to prohibition. I don't think that worked out so well. But that is where the WCTU got its name. Temperance or moderation is more than exercising self-control over our natural desires. Nor is it as simple as building habits through abstinence or self-denial. Your Lenten fast may help you grow closer to God. I pray that it will, and that mine will as well but it won't do much for developing temperance, at least not on its own. Because our eating habits are based on other factors that come from feelings, rational thought, and cultural conditioning, they can be modified through conscious effort. That effort is more than mind over matter. We might call it mind alongside matter. With intentionality and awareness, we can influence what we desire, the want to factor. Not the ought to, but the want to. Learning more about where our food comes from and how it is produced can alter our perceptions. Take, for instance, the increased availability of organic produce in recent years in response to better education and concern about large-scale commercial farming, pesticides, and the prevalence of genetically modified foods. Concern for justice and the plight of small-scale indigenous farmers gave rise to the fair trade movement, impacting how we purchase things like coffee and cocoa. Health concerns may prompt us to change the way we eat, either through a doctor's orders or as a result of watching a documentary like Food Inc. or Supersize Me. Now I have learned, this is a day of of confession, this is a third confession from me today. I'm looking for absolution from somebody. Uh, I, I have learned that if we have Oreos in the house, I have very little self-control. For me, a serving size is an entire row with a glass of milk. That, mean, that means there's three servings per package, by the way, if you're keeping track. So I choose not to buy them. We don't keep them very often. I love barbecue. Love to eat barbecue. I'd eat it all the time, except that I discover if I eat it too often, I feel terrible. And I don't end up appreciating my meal as much as if it is an occasional treat. The point is there are many factors that, that lead us to modify our choices and our desires when it comes to food. Temperance is also a biblical matter. God commands the people in Leviticus not to glean to the edge of their field or to gather what fell to the ground. So that, nothing, so that those who have nothing can find sustenance by collecting what remains in the field. Those who don't have property or crops of their own will have something. Paul warned the Corinthians about abusing the Lord's table by eating everything before others could arrive. And he warned the Philippians, for whom their God is their belly. And in one of his most scathing critiques of privilege, Jesus offered the parable of the rich man who feasted sumptuously day after day while the poor man Lazarus suffered at his gates. And if you know that story, you know it didn't turn out so well for the rich man. But the danger of gluttony isn't only the harm that it does to others. It can also damage our relationship with God. When the Israelites were given manna in the wilderness, they were warned not to gather more than was needed for a day. When they violated that commandment, they breached God's trust, relying on themselves instead of God's provision. Every week we pray the prayer Christ taught us, asking that God provide our daily bread, not an all-you-can-eat buffet, tomorrow. In response to Satan's temptation in the wilderness, Jesus declared that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want to pause here because it is very important, it is critically important that we do not confuse gluttony with being overweight. Our society has an unhealthy obsession with body type. Fat shaming is hurtful and despicable. I want to be clear about that. Friends, being overweight is not a sin. Judging someone because of their weight is... Gluttony takes many forms. These are sins we acknowledge through self-examination, not through social prejudice applied to others. And I further want to be very clear that in cases of addiction or eating disorders, what is needed is compassion and care and clinical help in many cases. Temperance is not an assignment to be completed in isolation. Nor is it a matter of personal growth we must achieve in order to be right with God. God's grace is for all. We were made to be in relationship, healthy relationship with one another. And as a community, we all bear responsibility for helping one another on the path to healing and wholeness, not judging one another. Food is a gift from God. A wonderful gift to be enjoyed and shared in all its amazing variety. We should give thanks for the abundance and rich variety that God provides to sustain us and to bring us together, not abuse that gift for selfish desires. We cultivate temperance by being more aware and more connected, both to the source of sustenance and to one another. Let us celebrate God's provision and be grateful for all that we have and be generous toward those who do not have enough. Above all, let us put our trust in the one who provides everything we need, both for our bodies and our spirits. Thanks be to God. Amen.